1: The fact that quantum is part of the way that the country is seeing its relationships internationally as well as making that industry shows how this is something which isn't just a flash in the pan, but this is enduring.
2: You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Medcalf. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their eldest past, present and emerging. So our topic today really goes to the heart of Australia's future in a highly competitive international system and and in a system really where uh, where technology, where where advances in science and technology are radically disrupting life, uh, radically disrupting uh, prosperity and radically disrupting um, security as well. And so our topic today, uh, which is really the uh, the role of quantum science in Australia's future and the the national quantum strategy that was released earlier this year is something that has deep application to the national interest. Our guests are ideally placed to really lead this conversation, and so it's a real pleasure uh, to welcome to the podcast Dr. Kathy Foley and Professor Michelle Simmons, and I'll say a little more about our guests in a moment, but just to begin, um, Kathy and Michelle, thank you so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure. Nice to talk to you. It's great to be here. Thanks very much for having us.
2: So these are two household names in Australia's uh, science and technology endeavours, but particularly when it comes to quantum uh, Dr Foley is Australia's chief scientist, and in that role, she provides authoritative and independent science advice on whole of government science and technology priorities to really ensure that the best evidence informs government decision-making. Prior to this appointment, uh, Dr Foley uh, built a long-standing career at Australia's National Science Agency, uh, Ciro, the CSIRO, um, as the agency's chief scientist. Uh, Professor uh, Michelle Simmons is a Scientia Scientia professor, uh, which is the the preeminent rank professor at the University of New South Wales in the field of uh, quantum physics. Uh, She's also the director of the Centre of Excellence for Quantum Computation and Communication Technology, uh, funded by the Australian Research Council. And many of our listeners will know and will recall that she was the Australian of the Year in 2018 for her extraordinary work and dedication uh, to quantum information science. So, Michelle, I might begin with you, if I may, because uh, I think when a lot of our listeners, policymakers, policy policy generalists, uh, the national security community, when they hear the word quantum, um, there's still a little bit of bewilderment. As to what this means in practical terms for our national interest, um, some of us will recall that a few years ago, I think it was actually uh, Justin Trudeau was a, one of those rare political leaders who felt that they could, um, you know, offer a, um, a a very straightforward explanation of what quantum science is. Uh, not a challenge, I think, that most political leaders would relish having. But what I'd like you to do for our listeners to begin with is just give us a quick snapshot of what is quantum and why does it matter?
3: Well, sure. I actually thought he didn't do such a bad job that when I heard his uh, recording. But essentially, um, quantum physics is the way the world behaves at the very smallest length scales. And so you know, year on year, humans have figured out how to make things smaller and smaller. And the smaller they become, the more dominated by quantum physics they are. Um, quantum physics behaves more like a wave than a particle and so there are ways of using quantum states where we can um, do calculations much faster than we can with classical computing and so in the quantum computing world it's being able to do calculations um, that would otherwise take thousands of years in just minutes Um, but it can also be used these quantum states can be used for transmitting information securely or because they're very small they're very sensitive to the environment so they're very good as sensors so there's basically three areas computing Um, communication and sensing. And it's all about controlling the world at the very smallest length scales where quantum physics dominates.
2: So, uh, Cathy, from an Australian national interest perspective, I know that there's a strategy the government released earlier this year. Um, How, in your view, uh, is Australia positioned to really take advantage in this realm?
1: Well, Australia is really well placed because it's a little bit unusual for us to have invested for the last 20 plus years in a particular research field when it was starting at the fundamental stage. So we got in on day one, I guess you could say, and uh, invested in multiple centres of excellence, of which you heard uh, Michelle is a leader of one of them. That's actually been the longest enduring one. It's been refunded several times. And the thing that's really important is we've had this sort of patient long-term fundamental science development in the country. We've trained, I think, about 2,500 PhD students. Uh, We've got to a point where it's got a level of maturity so that uh, different researchers within our our universities are beginning to spin out companies, and Michelle might tell us a bit about the one she's spun out, as well as seeing multinationals coming into the country because they can see we've got capability here That is world class. So that's why there's a quantum strategy is important is to help uh, the research sector uh, transition this into something which will be a new industry for Australia that's going to be impactful on pretty nearly every sector and for all of us it will make an impact on our lives in time as well.
2: So, Michelle, your your work's been um, mentioned and and, and lauded uh, in in this conversation, but I think again for our audience, and it's not only an Australian policy audience, but an international audience as well. It just wouldn't uh, be a bad thing if you could just give us a quick snapshot of your own uh, your own journey, your own work. Uh, how did, how did you, if you like, um, have, have the vision to, uh, to be at the leading edge of, um, of quantum physics in this country and indeed uh, with, with such international stature? How did it begin for you?
3: Yeah, so to be honest, I started in the UK. I was at the Cavendish and we were um, watching quantum computing evolve as a field and a paper, an important paper came out from a researcher that was here in Australia about if you could build a quantum computer, which is the best way to build it? Um, That paper um, uh, theorized the idea the best way to build it would be to use the silicon material system. And I guess at that time, it was quite prophetic because most um, research in classical computing was done in silicon. But in quantum, people were looking at what was going to be the new material. And so they were not actually looking at silicon at all. They thought the industry owned that. So what was fascinating for me was the Australian Research Council set up a center of excellence, which essentially started back in 2000 around actually Let's build it in silicon. It was really kind of ambitious. It was a a material that nobody was looking at. It seemed the obvious um, material to build it in, both because of its quality and its manufacturability. And so Australia really got in right at the beginning of that field. And it was at a time when, honestly, a lot of people were still wondering whether the field would grow or not. Um, and because we got in right at the beginning, we basically grew a large number of people working in a very collaborative way through the Australian Research Council Centre of Action Structure. And, and then, you know, it just became more and more successful. I think what's critical for Australia is we now hold key patents and know-how in, in that field. And because we've been in it for the longest time, it's it actually creates quite a high barrier to entry for other countries and indeed companies to start in the silicon space. So we have a quite an unusual lead In silicon quantum computing to actually manufacture the product here in Australia, to actually build the whole computer here in Australia. And I think that's just hugely exciting. And really, the genesis came from, honestly, for me, the collaborative and competitive nature of Australian research.
2: You know, some some observers sometimes wonder where Australia sits in global research rankings, and there's often commentary about the levels of government expenditure or research expenditure and, you know, arguments that we're not we're not performing. Um, but it sounds like in this field we are. I mean, Michelle, how do you feel about Australia's position globally?
3: Oh, look, I've, I think I've known for a long time that um, I think the irony is internationally we're incredibly well known. A lot of people know that we're leading this field um, in silicon primarily, but also in other areas of optical quantum computing. Um, there's lots of companies that are coming out of Australia I think, you know, the thing that I've seen is the amount of activity for the size of our population in quantum is disproportionately strong. So I think it's roughly 10 times more activity than you would expect for the size of our population. Um, and, but it's, it's also um, been going for so long and in such an ambitious way, such a milestone-driven way that everybody knows that, you know, in terms of talent, Australia is one of the best places in the world. And in terms of kind of focus in building large teams that are collaborative to be able to you know, build bigger projects, I think we're very well known for it to the extent that a lot of other countries are trying to catch it. So I mean, for me, ironically, the US is now building the equivalence of our centre of excellences over there. Um, but Australia really got in at the beginning. So it's something where, like I say, internationally, we're incredibly well known for being leaders in this field.
2: Um, Cathy, it, in your view, and also in terms of the strategy Where does Australia sit globally? I mean, is is there a global hierarchy or ranking of uh, which countries are leaders? How are we doing?
1: So if you go through looking at our research, we're in the top five or six, depending on what you measure. Globally. Globally. So when you think we're 0.3% of the world's population, that's pretty amazing. And we're the thirteenth biggest economy, so we're really up there. And as Michelle said, um, in sort of ten times more in the quantum area than you'd expect for a population and a country this size. So that's the first thing. But what's really important with the strategy is that it's allowed us to uh, put forward a, a pathway. And it's a, a, and you would hear from Minister Hughesik, who's the uh, Minister for Science and Industry, who's been leading the charge with the government on this and uh, and saying that uh, this is something where it's putting a flag down saying we're taking this seriously. We want to manufacture um, quantum systems in Australia. You've heard from Michelle about computing because that's her focus, but we've also got strengths in sensing and those sensors are here now and in computing in, uh, and in um, communications and uh, things such as cyber security, which is using uh, quantum key distributions. Uh, uh, there are businesses that have taken up and um, gone internationally using an Australian-based uh, research that's come out of ANU. So we've got a, a broad uh, range of different technologies that can uh, in, uh, interact with pretty nearly every, every area of society and has the potential to have that big impact. So how do we turn those companies, which we've got, some of them are still small and uh, are, are hoping and ambitious enough to grow so that they can be Global leaders in this, uh, and see how we can make it into a significant deep tech com- uh, industry for Australia, which is absolutely critical. And what the uh, strategy's done is showing the first steps. So looking, making sure that we're we've got the uh, the skilled workforce, we're doing the research that we've got the uh, support in place for our businesses to thrive. And then probably one of the ones which is most interesting too is reflecting on Australia's value system, which is very important for the country, is that we want to make sure that we create a an industry that has um, the ethics and the values that mean that it's a fair and equitable approach. And that's something which is uh, probably only one other country's identified that in their strategy, and that's the UK.
2: So just to sort of shed a bit more light on this for, for, for listeners, if you're looking at some of the, you know, the... The practical applications that are most important for the national interest, and I'd love to get from each of you maybe a couple of examples, what would those be, uh, but w- whether it's in terms of security or in terms of um, broader um, prosperity and societal good? Cathy, um, what would be your, uh, your, your, your headline applications?
1: Okay, so I guess the first one is in sensing at the moment uh, where this is my area of research is in uh, magnetic sensing for mineral exploration, This is where I, I cut my teeth when I was at CSIRO and we commercialised a system called LANTEM that's able to see down um, beneath the surface of the earth down to a kilometre or more and be able to identify and find mineral, uh, in this case, conducting all bodies like uh, silver, gold and um. Uh, and uh, nickel sulfides and uh, and so that's very important especially as we're seeing the need for more and more critical minerals to be able to be part of the energy transition to address climate change. So I think mineral exploration is, is one where we've uh, seen a number of different sensor systems being developed because you need different approaches depending on what mineral you're looking for and you can uh, be able to delineate and find things you couldn't find otherwise because just by the way, Australia is a pretty tricky country to do mineral exploration in because of the old conducting layer of soil—the red so- soil that we all know is in the outback—is uh, makes it very hard to see through, and that's where quantum sensors can be helpful. Uh, so that—that's one obvious one. And then I guess in the future, I think uh, one of the early uh, applications for uh, quantum technologies is the or quantum computing will be able to do in in a computer the design of new materials which are uh, able to be exact in the way that you do the calculations because you're doing true quantum calculations as opposed to making uh, um, approximations which are done with classical computers now. And with that, I'm hoping and expecting that we'll be able to design better catalysts, for example. We need to, again, I think I'll focus on climate change because that's our biggest threat at the moment, and being able to uh, transition to uh, a low emissions economy will require us to uh, use hydrogen uh, energy for uh, from batteries, maybe even design of new uh, photovoltaics that can operate in different light um, in, in different light spectrums, so that you could, for example, pick up uh, heat and be able to turn from and the uh, infrared to turn that into um, into solar panels, that, well, solar panels, uh, panels that pick up uh, EV light and be able to, or e, um, electromagnetic light and be able to use that at night time. So that requires you to be able to design new materials, which are tricky. It's very hard to design a new material and and then be able to manufacture it. So they're my two top ones.
2: Uh, Michelle?
3: Covered a lot there. So I guess for me, I, I look at it in the fact that there's roughly 70 different quantum algorithms that are out there, and they, they tend to come along in the quantum simulation space, which is, as Kathy says, looking at new materials. Um, so in that space, it's uh, looking at renewable energy by looking at different catalysts that allow for production of low CO2 fertilizer or, or looking at the energy density storage of batteries. Um, then I guess there's um, machine learning, so quantum, quantum computing and machine learning, are predicted to really uh, give it much uh, greater advancing, being able to find pattern recognition across different systems. That's quite a critical, uh, very topical area at the moment. Um, Then there's um, optimization problems, which really, I guess, things like the banks and transportation systems are looking, uh, obviously with banks, they're looking at their portfolio optimization. Um, With transportations, it's optimizing their networks. Um, In telecommunications companies like Telstra, it's uh, looking at frequency crowding of their signals. So optimization is another uh, kind of critical area. But then I guess the big one that everyone uh, really got into this field was obviously the uh, cryptography. So that's the the really big algorithm that would require quite a large scale quantum computer. But you know, once somebody gets to that point, it's going to be quite uh, important for national security.
2: Uh, I might just sort of um, push you a little bit on on that point, Michelle. Once somebody gets to that point, uh, because. There's been a lot of speculation over the years about you know at what point will the breakthrough happen uh, for effectively quantum decryption to you know effectively break any code, uh, you know the, the idea that somehow security systems will suddenly be um, be vulnerable everywhere. I mean, what's your thinking about that question of of breakthrough on decryption or or is that the wrong way to think about it?
3: Look, it was definitely uh, Peter Shaw's algorithm was one of the first ones that kicked off the field. I think it's the reason why you get huge investments from countries like the US and China. Um, so obviously it's, it's, a, it's an algorithm that is, uh, as I said, requires quite a large-scale error-corrected quantum computer. Um, and so, you know, the, the algorithm itself is so powerful that whoever uh, does have a quantum computer will be able to use it. And so countries are obviously looking at, um, uh, you know, quantum-hard cryptographic techniques but also just, you know, the emphasis on building the quantum computer itself has come from the fact that it is such a powerful machine to have. So where we stand right now, nobody has a machine that can do that. But obviously, as the computers themselves become error corrected and get higher and higher quality, then that's going to be something that we have to think about in the long term.
2: And this is a, I guess, this is a competition internationally. This is this is not necessarily, and please correct me if I'm, I'm mis, um, mis, uh, representing this, but It sounds to me that this is one field where uh, open collaboration with uh, research partners, no matter where they come from, is going to be problematic. This is one area where there is intense competition between nations. Is that correct?
3: Well, I think partly there is that, but obviously Australia's got very strong um, networks and collaborations with the US, with the UK. So there are strong collaborations that have occurred with those countries for several decades. And so, for example, we are funded by the US Army Research Office and have been uh, for more than 20 years. Um, And I guess partly, you know, setting up the company that we've got, Silicon Quantum Computing, partly why we have the government as a shareholder is to make sure the government's fully aware of the long-term technological implications of that technology.
2: And I would note, of course, that quantum is one of the critical technologies identified in, in AUKUS in the Pillar 2 of the um, the AUKUS uh, technology cooperation arrangement, so with with good reason, clearly. Uh, look, Cathy, uh, going back to you, it would be interesting to hear a little around the I guess, the other technologies, the enabling technologies, if if those exist, uh, you know, the ecosystem in which uh, quantum science is actually going to be uh, more and more effective for the national interest. This is not occurring in a vacuum, right?
1: No, it's not. So, of course, you have to have the whole supply chain that goes with it. It's not like you have a quantum system uh, without having all the other things that go with it. From, uh, in many applications, there's cryogenics involved. Uh, there's also a whole lot of electronics. So the Silicon supply chain is going to be really important to make sure they've got all the systems that drive the, uh, the quantum systems and have them linked into outputs that we can access as just as important. And then, of course, there's the materials. Uh, some aspects of these uh, different devices or different systems are requiring quite, uh, uh, I guess, sophisticated and, uh, and uh, highly pure uh, versions of a particular um, element or, uh, or compound and so that means that uh, you've got to make sure you've got the ability to uh, get access to that. And in some of the places where we can uh, find them being developed because they're usually that awkward situation where you don't need huge volumes but you've got to know, have a lot of skill to be able to do that, the purification of the material. And uh, quite often it's countries like China, Russia, um, uh, and uh, some of the European countries that are actually the experts, uh, Japan also and Korea do have some, some materials that we are using in quantum systems. But that's one of the tricky bits is making sure that the supply chains are there for the materials to be able to make these uh, different quantum systems.
2: And do you think that bo- both in terms of that you know that, that ecosystem uh, around quantum, but also in in, in investing resources in um, quantum science research and ap- research and applications. Do you think that Australia has the effectively the political will now to uh, show sustained commitment in this direction?
1: I think there is a really strong bipartisan uh, um, uh, engagement with quantum. You would have seen that the previous government had identified quantum as important and started the process going. And then the current government has really run with it and uh, and uh, and delivered the strategy, plus also a, a number of different uh, policy settings that are being rolled out now, like a quantum growth centre, quantum challenge or critical technology challenge program. The next uh, National Reconstruction Fund has identified a billion dollars of that for critical technologies of which quantum is one of them, as you mentioned. But it's also one where Australia, uh, you know, uh, the quantum community in Australia, is a very well placed to be successful in that if they've got good offerings. So, uh, and I guess the other is also the connections internationally. Quantum's being written into AUKUS and QUAD, which are two important um, uh, uh, global um, uh, relationships with different countries in order to, for security purposes, and um, And so the fact that quantum is part of the way that the country is seeing its relationships internationally as well as making that industry shows how this is something which isn't just a flash in the pan, but this is enduring.
0: We'll be right back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever.
2: Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. And I can't resist the opportunity to just give a small plug to some work that we're doing at the National Security College. We are the um, Australian convener of what's called the Quad Tech Network. So, in fact, uh, very shortly, I think in September uh, 2023, we'll be hosting a a conference where a number of ideas, papers will be released, including, I believe, on quantum. So thanks for uh, reminding me that the Quad is part of this international network as well. But, um, Michelle, I'll go back to you, if I may, just to ask... Uh, you perhaps what's missing? I mean, in a sense, there is this uh, pretty healthy bipartisanship, this um, this relatively strong political will at the moment, and, and the the, uh, the recent um, national strategy uh, underscored that. But uh, obviously, we can't we can't stand still. What would you like to see uh, in terms of uh, really whole of nation uh, investment going forward, whether it's from government, whether it's from the private sector, or, or, or other areas?
3: I think um, having a, a national strategy with that bipartisan support is hugely beneficial to the, the quantum that's out there. So I think they're incredibly grateful for all the work that's gone into that. Um, I think if you if you look forwards, um, one of the things I think the quantum community always talks about and it's something we live. So we see we're traveling globally all the time is the speed of which the other nations are. Are uh, getting results and investing. I think that's something we always, you know, feel in the pit of our stomach when we visit. You know, we've just got to keep moving, so we we constantly pass that back to government. That that's quite kind of critical for us. But I think at, at another level. Um, We're quite lucky in that we do have governments, industry and universities co-investing in companies. That's something that's quite unique, I think, to Australia. I'm seeing other countries starting to do that and some people will say we've always done that. But Australia really has a quite competitive advantage in getting those three sectors together and leveraging each other. That's something I think we're pretty excited about in the strategy as well. I think that that message has been heard. But I think probably something that um, for me is also quite critical in this is is the culture, that that sense, can Australia actually compete uh, at a global stage? Um, there's always been this view certainly when it comes to manufacturing that we're distant from our markets mm. um, and that you know it's, it's difficult for us to make you know low volume products but i think in the quantum space we've got to remember these are highly specialized products they're manufactured in low volumes they require skilled workforces which is something Australia has in abundance so and now with quantum in particular a lot of it is accessible via the cloud and so we're really eliminating that tyranny of distance and we're just honestly in a, in a fantastic position with the workforce we've got the backing of the government through these strategies and, you know, and from the investment we've had for 20 years. So we're in a very positive situation. I think that's the kind of the key message that, that I would want to get uh, for everyday Australians, to be honest.
2: So, I mean, that's that, that's pretty uh, heartening, if you like, to say that we're, we, we've got momentum, but we need to event, effectively uh, maintain it and perhaps um, share it across a broader part of the, um, of the community. I'm going to ask each of you, perhaps as we move towards the end of the conversation, a, uh, I hope a slightly thorny question on the future of quantum, which really is on the question of ethics and ethical implications, and perhaps what what are the principles that need to be in place to ensure that um, uh, Australia's uh, a world leader in um, in the ethical dimension and ensuring that the societal impact of, of, of quantum really is uh, to the to the public good. So I'll go. First, uh, to you on that, Cathy, what's your sense?
1: So the, the, f- the first thing is that there's about 22, 23 countries that have really got a serious quantum effort going on across the country. There's uh, how many countries in the world? About 180 something. So that means that there are many countries that are not going to have quantum capabilities. And if you think that a survey that was done by the UK last year sometimes said that uh, it was a survey of industry in the UK. They said that 100% of companies thought that quantum would disrupt everything. That and that uh, some uh, just at that said, uh, and another one said that that just about 50% of those companies said that that disruption will be here by 2025. So that's not that far away. So whether it's correct or not, it's the thing is that this is going to impact the world as we know it. And there's only some countries that have got the technology or not. So how do we actually make sure that, particularly our position in the Asia-Pacific, Southeast Asia-Pacific Rim, uh, is one where we interact in our, with our neighbours and make sure we bring them along when they may not have quantum capabilities. So that's that's one ethical one. The next one is that at the moment uh, you might have two females here, but that's pretty unusual. The number of women in quantum is quite low, uh, I've seen numbers five percent and fifteen percent, or somewhere in between. But it's it's means that uh, just the um, I guess those who are working in quantum and have that that know how is limited to uh, or, or, or not not equally divided across genders. Uh, and then I guess there's the other thing relating to uh, the the um, the, the uses of it, and this is what we're seeing at the moment um, with the work that's being done by the government on generative AI and trying to work through in collaboration with the community to say what are the guardrails we need to put in place? Uh, is it uh, We'll be able to do calculations very quickly now and bringing together uh, well, when we get full error-corrected computers that will allow us to do uh, computation that previously was difficult and so therefore created a level of security of um, privacy But if you're able to, on a much shorter time scale, be able to pull disparate databases together, you'd be able to get information about individuals quite quickly in real time, which can have real positives if we're looking at health or we just had a a, a workshop with the Australian Institute of Sport looking at quantum in sport and having real-time information about the the physicality of of sports and sports people might prevent injury or being able to optimize performance. So, they're examples of um, good areas, but we don't, you could also get information so that you could have uh, things which really start to lean into uh, privacy issues, such as knowing everything about you spent in a moment, where you are, tracking you, and that sort of thing. Uh, so, they're the sorts of uh, questions we have to understand and, and as a society make sure we have the social license as we roll this out. And uh, the the thing which I think is pretty encouraging is that Australia sees that as something that's very important. We've seen it in, the, uh, in AI as uh, artificial intelligence as having one of the first ethics um, roadmaps and strategies and also the work that's being done at the moment. So it's very consultative looking at uh, where do we want to have um, the guardrails up about generative AIs that's got a potential impact for all of us as we're seeing and I imagine quantum will be the same same approach.
2: So this goes to uh, legal and regulatory frameworks, as well as obviously having the right eth- ethical principles in place.
3: That's correct. Yes, uh,
2: Michelle, what's your what's your sense?
3: So look, I, I'll be honest. I come from a, I, I come at it from a different angle. I've always um, sensed the technology itself has the um, potential to be hugely disruptive, and so as you know, just as an individual, I've always found that. Um, too much for me to hold, which is why we've been um, briefing government really all the way through and, and indeed defence, uh, making sure that they're aware of what the technology can do and what kind of timeframes it's likely to come online. I think from from my perspective, the the technical challenges to producing something that's going to really solve problems that are a benefit for humanity, you know, issues around climate change, but how to optimise the world, how to understand uh, drug design, um, how it affects the health space. Those are things that are in a kind of forefront as to why a, a, a researcher or, or somebody that's setting up a company is trying to make things better for the world, and so so I'm really pushing that technology front, but I'm very conscious of the of the um, the ethical implications of having a technology that's out there without control. So I think one of the great things about the strategy with Kathy and, and and with the government's approach is they're looking at these in parallel and in a, in a time frame where the technology has been uh, built in the labs. So I see this as something that's very healthy at the moment. Um, for me in the long term, however, you know, I think uh, we've got to be careful we don't over egg it too much on that and slow down the technological development because it is a race. So at the core of it, I'm really just pushing that forefront of technology and making sure that people are aware of where where it's heading and what time frame.
2: I'm going to close on a note of, I guess, uh, maybe not optimism, but but confidence and vision, uh, because both of you have seen and indeed led some extraordinary uh, advances and, and, and change already in your careers in this field. But if you're looking now, projecting perhaps 10, 15 years into the future, let's look at the Australia of the 2030s. Um, what I, I'd love to have one or two observations from each of you as what you see as a, a feasible quantum future for Australia, whether it's a particular application that's uh, in wide use across uh, Australian society or economy or, or, or government or perhaps uh, a consequence that's uh, that's good for the well-being of um, of Australia and Australia's place in the world. And I'll um, I'll start with you, Michelle, and conclude um, with you, Kathy.
3: Yeah. Look, I think it goes back to my my earlier comments about you know Australia as a leader in this space. I think it's a, it's time for us to capture the economic benefits of developing new technologies here. Onshore, bringing people to our country to grow that specialized workforce and be um, kind of the center of what would be the the next kind of Silicon Valley, for want of a better word. I think Australia is hugely well positioned to be able to do that. Um, I think in terms of the technology itself, we will have machines that will allow us to solve problems that we just simply can't do at the moment. And I see that hitting pretty much every industry sector. So that will supercharge Australian industry and just it will make Australia a very positive place to come, not that it isn't already, uh, but it's like a future technology hub for the Asia-Pacific region and indeed indeed the world. So I think it's very, very positive for Australia.
2: Kathy,
1: Well, Michelle said it really well, but it is going to be ubiquitous. So uh, most people won't even realise that quantum is going to be part of their everyday And, uh, they'll be wondering why maybe banking industry is able to do something better or that the, uh, trains and buses work better because of logistics, being able to stop traffic snarls because, uh, you can run optimization routes much faster, which you can't do currently. Uh, we're going to, I think, have the potential to be the real Asia Pacific hub for, for, a place where uh, we can create quantum technologies that go out to that region because we've got the advantage in many ways. We've got space for being able to set up businesses, which uh, some of the competing companies, countries where uh, we're trying to, uh, I guess, make sure that we're competitive against are running out of space. And this is something that Australia has, as well as the workforce. Uh, because we've had that enduring long-term capability in the research field in quantum, it's meant that we've got the skills and um, and then we're looking at the VET side, the vocational education and training as well to say what are the skills that are needed so it's not just PhDs but also those who are often are more technical. And then uh, we're seeing uh, a real recognition that this is a pathway for uh, good jobs for people to realise that they can have... Uh, a business either they create themselves or be part of a quantum uh, business here in Australia. And we are seeing already other com- com- companies coming from overseas see- setting up in Australia because they see that we've got a lot of the uh, the uh, policy settings and the workforce and uh, the investment here so that it's because you need to, an industry isn't just one business, it's a, a critical mass of the supply chain, the actual businesses in all the different areas that then allow us to be able to uh, be the um, quantum country that I think we aspire to be.
2: That was uh, that was Dr Kathy Foley, Australia's Chief Scientist, uh, joined on our program today by Professor Michelle Simmons. It's been a real privilege to uh, hear from you both about Australia's quantum future. Thank you very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast.
1: Thank you. Bye now.